The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Here we go. How are you? I hope you are all well. Pandemic, quarantine, a lost spring for much of the world. We are staying at home, taking care of ourselves, and worrying. Some of us get sick. Some of us have loved ones who have gotten sick. Some of us are worried every minute about our frontline friends and families, the heroes who are out there fighting for health, for our loved ones, and for us. They are the heroes. We find heroes even in a tragic crisis like this one. Heroes like Jose Andres, the chef who feeds the hungriest in disaster after disaster. Heroes like all the doctors and nurses and grocery store workers and emergency room technicians and ambulance drivers who are out there still working, still helping. We thank them all. Things are bad here in the United States as I'm recording this. There are a few green shoots elsewhere in the world, some signs that a return to normalcy is not an impossibility. But in some ways, I don't know what normalcy is going to be. We will see. But as always, this is not the history of the coronavirus, but the history of literature. And so we turn to books and literature, as we always do, twice a week during this crisis, so far anyway, to share some humanity around the world this week. We have the great William Trevor. My God, what a writer he was. Just a writer. A pure writer. (laughs) One of the purest. If you had some kind of test you could do on writers, a chemical test. Told you I've been watching Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, right? Every few episodes, someone tests the meth in Breaking Bad. And Walter White's is always the best. Some hack cooking in his kitchen might make a meth that's 60% pure, maybe. Maybe 70% if they know what they're doing. Some chemist in a lab might crank that up to 85 or 90%. Walter White, the high school chemist, chemistry teacher who's decided to break bad and who years ago lost out on billions of dollars when he left his fledgling company in the hands of a couple who did make that much money. Walter White makes meth that's like 99 point something percent pure. It's so pure, it's blue. It's a weird trick. I don't know if any of that is accurate to meth production. Could be all invented for the show, for all I know. But it's a weird trick how the show makes you hate meth. You see how horrible it is for the users, how devastating. And yet, you're kind of proud of Walt for being so good at what he does. It's his source of power. It's his one skill. Makes him kind of a superman. Even the most powerful drug lords respect the blue. They want Walt. They need him. He calls himself Heisenberg and becomes not just a player in the drug world, but a legend. Why am I talking about this? Well, that's kind of how I feel when I read William Trevor. As a writer, he's pure. He has no weaknesses. He just writes and writes and writes beautiful sentences, beautiful paragraphs, beautiful stories, beautiful books, all beautiful without trying too hard or giving off the impression that he's trying too hard, like some writers whose effort makes them look 
all sweaty and desperate, like hamsters, furiously running in a wheel. Not Trevor. He's serene. He's true. There are no impurities to his writing. He's the Heisenberg of literature. <laughs> there we go. William Trevor. I just compared him to a great cooker of meth. What am I doing? What am I thinking? I don't, I don't even know. Sometimes I just get on a roll. I've been cooped up for a while, people. Ah, oh, well. Nowhere else but the History of Literature podcast, people. You won't get that kind of analysis anywhere else. For that, you need to come to Jack Wilson, and he will deliver. So here's what we'll do, my friends. Here's what we're going to cook. First, we'll have the life and career of William Trevor, a.k.a. the Heisenberg of Literature, which I really need to stop saying. Maybe now I can't help myself. It's a compliment, people. You really couldn't have more affection for Trevor than I do, or for Walter White, for that matter, even though he's a total monster. He's a literary monster, a fictional character, which gives him a special status, like Humbert Humbert. Okay, we'll dig into the life and career of William Trevor, to be clear, who never cooked meth, at least not that we know about. Oh, my God. Three weeks. Three weeks cooped up in my basement, people, and this is where we come. This has really gone off the rails now. William Trevor, decent person by all accounts, as far as I know, and an absolutely gorgeous writer. Forget I ever brought up Breaking Bad. It's on the brain. I'm sorry, William Trevor. Amazing writer. Beautiful writer. Great humanist. We'll have that story, the story of his life, and then we'll hear one of his beautiful and amazing and full of humanity stories called After Rain. That's all coming up today. After this, I regret special love I had for you. Hey, grown ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery. Perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. William Trevor lived a long time. He was born in Ireland in 1928, and he lived there for 26 years before moving to England, where he lived for the rest of his life. 
62 more years. Though he said he was, quote, Irish in every vein, end quote. His father was a bank official, and much of his childhood was spent moving from one Irish town to the next, from Mitchellstown, County Cork, where he was born, to Skibbereen, Tipperary, Ugal, and Enniscorthy. Some fantastic names in that group. Skibbereen? Come on. Who wouldn't want to go to Skibbereen? It's like Kalamazoo. Those towns that I mentioned in Ireland are small even today. I assume they were this size or maybe a little smaller back then. Mitchellstown has... 3,400 people or so, Skibbereen, 2,500. The others were a little larger, but not by much. And of course, these would all be huge by my standards, considering the town I grew up in. But I think there's a small town flavor to much of Trevor, even when the settings are in the city. When I'm in New York, everything is day to day, maybe month to month. I used to see the superintendent, Mickey, outside hosing down the sidewalk, and I'd say, hello. And at some point, I learned he liked the Mets. And so I checked the Mets score in the morning, and my son, who was about two, would either say, Congratulations, Mickey, or Sorry about the Mets, Mickey, every day as we passed by in the stroller on our way to the bagel shop. At the bagel shop, they'd say hello and say, Do you want a spicy bagel? Which is what my son called an everything bagel. And once in a while, you'd bump into a neighborhood friend, and that would be great. It felt like this great coincidence, like magic, like, Oh, of course you're here. You live just two streets over, and here you are. Hello. In a way, what I've just described is a small town, even there in New York City. But here's the difference. Mickey might be gone tomorrow, taking another job. The bagel store might close, or new people might start working there. People rotate in, people rotate out. We ourselves change apartments, or change neighborhoods, or change friends. You meet new people all the time. Others leave. It's all okay. It's not tragic when someone moves away. It's just part of it. At the same time, you're encountering strangers, hundreds, thousands of strangers a week. Let's say you see them on the subway, in the park, in the restaurants, on the sidewalk. There's a numbers game here. A lot of potential new acquaintances or friends, but nobody really expects that to happen. You can have encounters, lovely encounters with total strangers and without any expectations at all brief encounters. One of my greatest memories of New York was when I was out there and there was kind of a flood. I was walking by myself on the sidewalk on the way to a a job wearing a suit and a huge downpour suddenly burst out of the sky. And there was a woman on the intersection struggling with a stroller. There was a flood in the crossing and she couldn't get across. Her baby was dry underneath plastic And I knew exactly what the problem was with that stroller because I had spent the last couple of years wrestling with a stroller myself in New York. And with barely a word, I just asked if she needed help. And she said yes. And I picked up the front of the stroller and the two of us carried it through the flood. And we got it onto the sidewalk and under an awning. And I just went on my way. She was thanking me and I just said, hey, don't worry, I know what this is like. And she said, yep, I figured you did. Thanks. And ladies and gentlemen, that woman was Tina Fey. (laughs) No, it wasn't Tina Fey, but it could have been. Tina Fey and I used to run into each other all the time at the Children's Museum. Our kids must be the same age. But this was just another woman, a stranger in need of help. And I was there and I could help. It was a great feeling. I was soaking wet, but that didn't matter. I was on my way home and I could get dry. 
That baby was what mattered. The baby and the sanity of this total stranger who was taking care of that baby. In New York, this happens over and over. Sometimes the people get you down. The crush of people buzzing around, pressing up against you in the subway, feeling hot on the sidewalks, crowded, everywhere is crowded. Other times, most times I would say, the people lift you up. There's laughter and smiles and a feeling that everyone's in it together. Everyone's struggling to survive and a feeling that everyone has something going on and doesn't need something from you. They will leave you alone because they know the encounter is only going to be brief. And anyway, they have someone else in their lives who they're looking to for whatever it is they need. All that is to say that a small town is different. In a small town, when someone new comes, they're suddenly part of your lives and might be forever. This might be a bully who will now terrorize you. It might be a loudmouth who will dominate meetings. It might be a dentist who will compete with the other town dentist and drive him away. And the other dentist happens to be the father of the girl you're sure you're going to marry 10 years from now when the two of you turn 18. And whenever someone dies, there's a hole in the town. There's a saying about whales that they're so big when you pull them out, you leave a hole in the sea. A hole in the sea. In New York, there are very few whales that big. I suppose a museum or a really famous restaurant might be big enough, but no person is. In a small town, you might say that about a pop machine. <laughs> oh, remember when that pop machine, remember when we had a pop machine and it worked? Pop is what Wisconsin people call soda. Remember when we had a pop machine? Remember when we could turn on the lights at the tennis court and play at night? Remember the gas station where we could go hang out? Those were good days. The days of the pop machine. And you say, remember Mr. Monroe, remember the McNallys, remember Miss Berryman, the librarian, remember old man DeVoe, New York's of the moment. You make yourself and break yourself right there on the spot every day, every minute. No one's watching, no one's tracking. In the small town, you know whole generations of people. Your grandfather tells you about the people he knew, and it's your friend's family. There's a sweep to it. Generations jump one to the next. I might ask Mickey about his family, Mickey the superintendent. I might ask him about his family, and I might hear that his mother-in-law is moving in with them because her husband has died. I might hear that his father used to take him to Mets games. I know a little about Mickey. I don't know his whole family saga. But in the small town, I know everyone. I can walk up and down streets and know every single house on the street, every resident of every house who lives there now and who lived there before. And I know what they do and what their parents did, how many kids they had, whether they have a dog, what kind of cars they drive, how they live, whether they're generous, whether they're smart, whether they've been in trouble. I know their dreams and their frustrations. I know what the inside of their house looks like and their backyard. And I know their strange hobbies. I know them and they know me. We're tied together all the time and there's no one else. The churn of New York, which can happen at any time, which can happen if you get off on a different subway stop, is just not here in the small town. There's a little bit of churn on the margins, but hardly any in the middle. 
You see this playing out in Trevor in his writing, no matter where the stories take place. It's a small-town feeling, an attitude, a sense of being able to summarize people and situate them in their lives, to put them in their temporal place, to draw upon their ancestors and look ahead to their progeny. For Trevor, there's a kind of wry humor here, too, a good-naturedness, often. Although my favorite stories of his are closer to Chekhov's sensibility than, say, a farce. He's a great practitioner of the tragicomic, which, as you all know by now, suits me very well. Trevor was educated at Trinity College in Dublin, like so many other great Irish writers. He got a degree in history. He worked for a while as a sculptor, which is interesting for a short story writer. One wonders if he viewed that as a comparable skill or a mentality that helped him write those short stories to shape them. He taught and later worked as a copywriter for an advertising agency. What else can we say about Trevor? He wrote a million short stories. He wrote won a lot of prizes. In 2002, they allowed non-American writers into the O. Henry competition for short story writing. They might as well have renamed it the William Trevor Prize. He won in 2002, 2006, 2007, and 2008. He wrote novels, too, and he was successful. And he became... Not quite experimental, but he stretched against the boundaries of form, shifting points of view, using more complex technical structures. Narrators were not always reliable, and he used multiple multiple perspectives to cover the same events to try to get at the truth, a.k.a. Rashomon, which always suggests that the truth is unknown and maybe unknowable. His novels are good. I don't think anyone who reads Felicia's Journey will ever forget it. But for me... It's the short stories that carry the day. I feel as I do when I read Alice Munro that I am putty in her hands. Putty in her hands. That's a cliche, but think of it literally. I am clay, soft clay, and Alice Munro is going to make me into whatever the hell kind of reader she wants me to be. Chekhov does that too, of course, and so does Trevor. I lose myself. My defenses are down. I'm like a Dog in a car going along for the ride, maybe sticking my head out the window for a little breeze, maybe just sitting still and watching the road come flying at me. I will go wherever they want. I will do whatever they want me to do. I will be who they want me to be. They lose themselves as writers in the story, and I lose myself as a reader. Sounds a little grand, but there it is. have to be honest about how I feel. This week, we're going to look at a story of William Trevor's called After Rain, from his collection of that title, published in 1996. Last week, we talked about author Yi Yoon Lee and her complicated energy, a lot of which came from growing up in a family without boundaries. Her father was too weak to have any, and her mother was too needy. Boundaries is one of those words that people throw around, and if you're not in the world of therapy, as I am not, so what do I know, really? But if you're in the world even less than I am, you might think it means that boundaries means someone can trample all over you. They take your stuff. They abuse you. They don't respect you as a person. They don't give you space. I guess that's one possible definition, that they never give you oxygen. They don't let you breathe. You're damaged because you can't develop. You're the seedling that never gets any sun. I think there's a different definition of boundaries. And I just heard an interview with the great Gary Shandling one of my heroes, in a way. My show of shows of all time is Breaking Bad, 
I've said that before. My Maybe my second favorite of all time is the Larry Sanders show. It's kind of like Breaking Bad is my Shakespeare and the Larry Sanders show is my checkoff. Anyway, Gary Shandling was talking about boundaries. And he gave his definition, which is that a person has an emotional craving that they use you to satisfy. You're not a person to them, or they don't respect you as an autonomous individual. They don't care about your needs and wants and hopes and fears. You're there to fill them up, to supply what they need. We probably all know people like this. Maybe we've all been like this to some extent, if not with our children, then with our parents or friends or an ex or something. Seems human to me. But when you put a developing child in that situation and the person who's the emotional vampire, let's call them that, they jump on your body like a vampire and drain your emotions. When it's a developing child who's the victim and the emotional vampire is a parent who's in a position of power, who's supposed to be providing support and love and generosity and rules and a healthy framework for growth, and instead they're just taking and taking and taking and then you turn up the blood-sucking or the emotion-draining to 11, well, then you end up with a child and then a teenager and then an adult who has what I called last week a hole, a need of their own, a feeling of uselessness, of never being good enough, of not mattering as a person. If all you are is a supply hose of emotion for others, what good are you? That's the problem. I heard Gary Shanling, a kind of... Buddha figure, a brilliant comedian, a Zen master, a thinker. I heard him talking about this, and I thought of Yi Yun Lee, and some of those things her mother said to her, the wrathful and possessive love that Lee talked about her mother having. You deserve the ugliest death because you do not love me enough. What a thing to say to a child. What a monstrous thing. Why am I going into all of this now? Because in doing this research for Yi Yun Lee, I encountered a little snippet in an article where she was asked to name a short story she loved. And she chose William Trevor, her favorite author, she said, and she chose today's story, After Rain. I think we've talked about William Trevor before. I remember him coming up in one of the Margot Livesey episodes. I'm a huge fan, as well as Margot is. Trevor's a wonderful writer, incredible writer up there with Alice Monroe, and if you know how much I love Alice Monroe, you'll know what high praise that is. After Rain is a quiet story, like many of Trevor's stories, and I don't want to say too much about it. I want to let it speak for itself. But here's what Lee says about it. Quote, William Trevor has influenced me more than any other writer, and it's impossible for me to name one story by him that is an absolute favorite. I can, however, name 20 to 30 stories that I return to often. One of these is After Rain. A woman travels alone to recover from a love that has ended too abruptly. But the wish that solitude could exercise loneliness is as faulty as the wish that love could exercise disappointment brought by love. The story to me is like an eyedrop for the mind. It doesn't offer a resolution to life's muddiness, but it offers a moment of clarity. End quote. What was Lee looking for and what did she find? Well, she tells us what she found, a moment of clarity. The hope that solitude can exercise loneliness is faulty. The wish that love can exercise disappointment brought by love is also faulty. We recognize those things. You'll hear them in the story. But you'll hear something else. You'll, he you'll see something 
else. A young woman who's trying to recover from a broken relationship, but who's also looking back at her childhood, remembering her parents, remembering what things were like with them, remembering, remembering the reasons for sadness and the way that the sadness of her childhood has bled into her adult life and how there's a desire for not just affirmation and hope and love and a feeling of being whole, but even just a desire for certainty. Certainty isn't going to come. It can't come. It can never come. Life's muddiness, in Lee's phrase, will continue. There's no resolution. But listen to this story and think about Lee's childhood and maybe your own childhood and how it's affected who you are and how you make your way through the world. And think about how much you, as a grown person, are still looking for something to make you whole. How much you are looking to other people, to memories of them, to replacements for them, maybe to the actual people. Think about how much of this is you wanting to find certainty, not just the confidence. We're all drawn to confidence. We think that confident people are comforting. We let ourselves listen to them. We want them to be right. We hope they have the answers. Why do we want that so badly? Because we want answers. We want certainty. This world is a terrifying place, and life is terrifying, and our instinct is to crave certainty. And when that's undermined, as you'll see it was for the woman in the story today, the undermining of it has a way of seeping into everything we do, how we act, how we think, how we search for love. It's a beautiful story, very subtle, very fine, a kind of gossamer touch. After Rain by William Trevor. After this. Solitary diners are fitted in around the walls, where space does not permit a table large enough for two. These tables for one are in three of the room's four corners, by the door of the pantry where the jugs of water keep cool, between one family table and another, on either side of the tall casement windows that rattle when they're closed or opened. The dining room is large, its ceiling high, its plain cream-colored walls undecorated. It is noisy when the pensione's guests are there, the tables for two that take up all the central space, packed close together, edges touching. The solitary diners are well separated from this mass by the passage left for the waitresses, and have a better view of the dining room's activity and of the food before it's placed in front of them, whether tonight it is brodo or pasta, beef or chicken, and what the dolce is. Dieci. Harriet says, giving the number of her room when she is asked. The table she has occupied for the last eleven evenings has been joined to one that is too small for a party of five. She doesn't know where to go. She stands a few more moments by the door, serving dishes busily going by her, wine bottles grabbed from the marble-topped sideboard by the rust-haired waitress, or the one with a wild look, 
or the one who is plump and pretty. It is the rust-haired waitress who eventually leads Harriet to the table by the door of the pantry, where the water jugs keep cool. Dabere? she asks, and Harriet, still feeling shy, although no one glanced in her direction when she stood alone by the door, orders the wine she has ordered on other nights, Santa Cristina. Wearing a blue dress unadorned except for the shiny blue buckle of its belt, she has earrings that hardly show, and a necklace of opaque white beads that isn't valuable. Angular and thin, her dark hair cut short, her long face strikingly like the sharply chiseled faces of Modigliani. A month ago she passed out of her twenties. She is alone in the Pensiona Cesarina because the love affair is over. A holiday was cancelled. There was an empty fortnight. She wanted to be somewhere else then, not in England with time on her hands. Yo sola, she said on the telephone, hoping she had got that right, choosing the Cesarina because she'd known it in childhood, because she thought that being alone would be easier in familiar surroundings. Va bene? The rust-haired waitress inquires, proffering the Santa Cristina. Si, si. The couples who mostly fill the dining room are German, the general sound of their language drifting to Harriet from the tables that are closest to her. Middle-aged, the women more stylishly dressed than the men, they are enjoying the heat of August and the low-season tariff, demi-pensione at 110,000 lira. The heat may be too much of a good thing for some, although it's cooler by dinner time, when the windows of the dining room are all open, and the Cesarina is cooler anyway, being in the hills. If there's a breeze about, Harriet's mother used to say, it finds the Cesarina. Twenty years ago, Harriet first came here with her parents when she was ten, and her brother twelve. Before that, she had heard about the pensione, how the terracotta floors were oiled every morning before the guests were up, and how the clean smell of oil lingered all day, how breakfast was a roll or two, with tea or coffee on the terrace, how dogs sometimes barked at night from a farm across the hills. There were photographs of the parched garden, and of the stately ochre-washed exterior, and of the pensione's vineyard, steeply sloping down to two enormous wells. And then she saw for herself summer after summer in the low season, the vast dining room at the bottom of a flight of stone steps from the hall, and the three salons where there is stock or grappa after dinner, with tiny cups of harsh black coffee. In the one with the bookcases there are Giotto reproductions in a volume on the table lectern, and my brother Jonathan and Rebecca among the detective novels by George Goodchild on the shelves. The guests spoke in murmurs when Harriet first knew these rooms, English mostly, for it was mostly English who came then. To this day, the Pensione Cesarina does not accept credit cards, but instead will take a euro check for more than the guaranteed amount. Ecco, signora. A waitress with glasses, whom Harriet has seen only once or twice before, places a plate of tagliatelle in front of her. Grazie. Prego, signora. Buon appetito. If the love affair hadn't ended, and Harriet has always believed that love affairs are going to last. She would now be on the island of Skyros. If the love affair hadn't ended, she might one day have come to the Cesarina as her parents had before their children were born, and later might have occupied a family table in the dining room. There is an American family tonight, and an Italian one, and other couples besides the Germans. A couple, just arrived, spoke what sounded like Dutch upstairs. Another Harriet knows to be Swiss, Another she guesses to be Dutch also. 
A nervous English pair are too far away to allow eavesdropping. Va bene? The rust-haired waitress inquires again, lifting away her empty plate. Molto bene. Grazie. Among the other solitary diners is a gray-haired, dumpy woman who has several times spoken to Harriet upstairs, an American. A man is noticeable every evening because of his garish shirts, and there's a man who keeps looking about him in a jerky, nervous way, and a woman, stylish and black, who could be French. The man who looks about, small, with delicate, well-tended good features, often glances in this woman's direction, and sometimes in Harriet's. An elderly man whose white linen suit observes the formalities of the past wears a differently striped silk tie each dinner time. On the first night of her stay, Harriet had the small house at Allington in her handbag, intending to prop it up in front of her in the dining room, but when the moment came, that seemed all wrong. Already, then, she regretted her impulse to come here on her own and wondered why she had. On the journey out, the rawness of her pain had in no way softened, if anything had intensified, for the journey on that day should have been different and not made alone. She had forgotten there would be that. With the chicken pieces she's offered, there are roast potatoes, tomatoes, and zucchini, and salad. Then Harriet chooses cheese, pecorino, a little gorgonzola. Half of the Santa Cristina is left for tomorrow, her room number scribbled on the label. On the envelope provided for her napkin, this is more elegantly inscribed in a sloping hand. Camera Dieci. She folds her napkin and tucks it away. And for a moment as she does so, the man she has come here to forget pushes through another crowded room, coming towards her in the King of Poland, her name on his lips. I love you, Harriet, he whispers beneath the noise around them. Her eyes close when their caress is shared. My darling Harriet, he says. Upstairs in the room where the bookcases are, Harriet wonders if this solitude is how her life will be. Has she returned to this childhood place to seek whatever comfort a happy past can offer? Is that a truer reason than what she told herself at the time? Her thoughts are always a muddle when a love affair ends. The truth befogged, the truth not there at all, it often seems. Love failed her, was what she felt when another relationship crumbled into nothing. Love has a way of doing that. And since wandering is company for the companionless, she wonders why it should be so. This is the first time that a holiday has been cancelled, that she has come away alone. Mi dispiace, a boy in a white jacket apologizes, having spilt some of a liqueur on a German woman's arm. The woman laughs and says in English that it doesn't matter. Non importa, her husband adds when the boy looks vacant, and the German woman laughs again. My oui, I study the law, a long-legged girl is saying, and Eloise is a stylist. These girls are Belgian. The questions of two Englishmen are answered. The Englishmen are young, both of them heavily built, casually turned out, one of them mustached. Is stylist right? Is that what you say? Oh, yes. And both young men nod. When one suggests a liqueur on the terrace, Eloise and her friend ask for cherry brandy. The boy in the white jacket goes to pour it in a cupboard off the hall, where the espresso machine is. And you? Eloise inquires as the four pass through the room, through the French windows to the terrace. Nev's in business. I go down after Rex. 
The voice that drifts back is slack, accented, confident. English or German or Dutch, these are the people who have made the Pensione Cesarina move with the times, different from the people of Harriet's childhood. A bearded man is surreptitiously sketching a couple on one of the sofas. The couple, both reading, are unaware. In the hall, the American family is much in evidence. The mother with a baby in her arms pacing up and down. The father quietening two other children, a girl and a boy. Good evening. Someone interrupts Harriet's observations, and the man in the linen suit asks if the chair next to hers is taken by anyone else. His tie tonight is brown and green, and Harriet notices that his craggy features are freckled with an old man's blotches, that his hair is so scanty that whether it's gray or white doesn't register. What is subtle in his face is the washed-out blue of his eyes. You travel alone, too, he remarks, openly seeking the companionship of the moment, when Harriet has indicated that the chair beside her is not taken. Yes, I do. I can always pick out the English. He offers the theory that this is perhaps something the traveler acquires with age and with the experience of many journeys. You'll probably see, he adds. The companion of the bearded man who is sketching the couple on the sofa leans forward and smiles over what she sees. In the hall, the American father has persuaded his older children to go to bed. The mother still soothes her baby, still pacing up and down. The small man who so agitatedly glanced about the dining room passes rapidly through the hall, carrying two cups of coffee. They certainly feed you, Harriet's companion remarks, these days at the Cesarina. Yes. Quite scanty, the food was once. Yes, I remember. I mean, a longish time ago. The first summer I came here I was ten. He calculates, glancing at her face to guess her age. Before his own first time, he says, which was the spring of 1987. He has been coming since, he says, and asks if she has. My parents separated. I'm sorry. They'd been coming here all their married lives. They were fond of this place. Some people fall for it, others not at all. My brother found it boring. A child might, easily. I never did. Interesting. Those two chaps picking up the girls. I wonder if they'll ever cope with coach tours at the Cesarina. He talks. Harriet doesn't listen. This love affair had once, like the other affairs before it, felt like the exorcism of the disappointment that so drearily colored her life when her parents went their separate ways. There were no quarrels when her parents separated, no bitterness, no drama. They told their children gently, neither blamed the other. Both for years, apparently, had been involved with other people. Both said the separation was a happier outcome than staying together for the sake of the family. They used those words, and Harriet has never forgotten them. Her brother shrugged the disappointment off, but for Harriet it did not begin to go away until the first of her love affairs. And always, when a love affair ended, there had been no exorcism after all. I'm off tomorrow, the old man says. She nods. In the hall, the baby in the American mother's arms is sleeping at last. The mother smiles at someone Harriet can't see and then moves towards the wide stone staircase. The couple on the sofa, still unaware that they've been sketched, stand up and go away. The agitated little man bustles through the hall again. Sorry to go, 
Harriet's companion finishes something he has been saying, then tells her about his journey, by train because he doesn't care for flying, lunch in Milan, dinner in Zurich, on neither occasion leaving the railway station, the eleven o'clock sleeper from Zurich. We used to drive out when I came with my parents. I haven't ever done that, and of course, won't ever now. I liked it. At the time, it didn't seem unreal or artificial. Their smiling faces didn't, nor the pleasure they seemed to take in pokey French hotels where only the food was good, nor their chattering to one another in the front of the car, their badinage and arguments. Yet retrospect insisted that reality was elsewhere, that reality was surreptitious lunches with two other people, and afternoon rooms, and guile, that reality was a web of lies until one of them found out, it didn't matter which, that reality was when there had to be something better than what the family offered. So this time you have come alone? He may have said it twice. She isn't sure. Something about his expression suggests he has. Yes. He speaks of solitude. It offers a quality that is hard to define, much more than the cliché of getting to know yourself. He himself has been on his own for many years, and has discovered consolation in that very circumstance, which is an irony of a kind, he supposes. I was to go somewhere else. She doesn't know why she makes this revelation. Politeness, perhaps. On other evenings, after dinner, she has seen this man in conversation with whomever he has chosen to sit beside. He is polite himself. He sounds more interested than inquisitive. You changed your mind? A friendship fell apart. Ah, I should be on an island in the sun. And where is that, if I may ask? Skyros, it's called. Renowned for its therapies. Therapies? They're a fashion. For the ill, is this? If I may say so, you don't look ill. No, I'm not ill. Unable to keep the men she loves in love with her, but of course not ill. In fact, you look supremely healthy. He smiles. His teeth are still his own, if I may say so. I'm not so sure that I like islands in the sun, but even so, I wanted to go there. For the therapies? No, I would have avoided that. Sand therapy, water therapy, sex therapy, image therapy, holistic counseling. I would have steered clear, I think. Being on your own's a therapy, too, of course, although it's nice to have a chat. She doesn't listen. He goes on talking. On the island of Skyros, tourists beat drums at some sunset and welcome the dawn with a song. Or they may simply swim and play or discover the undiscovered self. The Pensione Cesarina, even the Pensione transformed by the Germans and the Dutch, offers nothing like it. Nor would it offer enough to her parents anymore. Her divided parents travel grandly now. I see the Spanish farm is still on the shelves. The old man has risen and hovers for a moment. I doubt that anyone's read it since I did in 1987. No, probably not. He says goodnight and changes it to goodbye because he has to make an early start. For a moment, it seems to Harriet, he hesitates, something about his stance suggesting that he'd like to be invited to stay, to be offered a cup of coffee or a drink. Then he goes without saying anything else. Lonely in old age, she suddenly realizes, wondering why she didn't notice that that when he was talking to her. Lonely in spite of all he claims for solitude. Goodbye, 
she calls after him, but he doesn't hear. They were to come back here the summer of the separation. Instead, there were cancellations then too, and an empty fortnight. Buona notte. The boy in the white jacket smiles tentatively from his cupboard as she passes through the hall. He's new tonight. It was another boy before. She hasn't realized that either. She walks through the heat of the morning on the narrow road to the town, by the graveyard and the abandoned petrol pumps. A few cars pass her, coming from the pensione, for the road leads hardly anywhere else, petering out eventually. It would have been hotter on the island of Skyros. Clouds have gathered in one part of the sky, behind her as she walks. The shade of clouds might make it cooler, she tells herself, but so far they are not close enough to the sun for that. The road widens, and gradually the incline becomes less steep as she approaches the town. There's a park with concrete seats and the first of the churches, its chosen saint Agnese of this town. There's no one in the park until Harriet sits there beneath the chestnut trees in a corner. Far below her, as the town tails off again, a main road begins to wind through clumps of needle pines and umbrella pines to join, far out of sight, a motorway. But weren't we happy? She hears herself exclaim, a little shrill because she couldn't help it. Yes, they were happy, he agreed at once, anxious to make that clear. Not happy enough was what he meant, and you could tell, something not quite right. She asked him, and he didn't know, genuine in his bewilderment. When she feels cooler, she walks on, down shaded, narrow streets, to the central piazza of the town, where she rests again, with a cappuccino at a pavement table. Italians and tourists move slowly in the unevenly paved square, women with shopping bags and dogs, men leaving the barbers, the tourists in their summery clothes. The church of Santa Fabiola dominates the square, gray steps in front, a brick and stone facade. There's another cafe, across from the one Harriet has chosen, and a line of market stalls beside it. The town's banks are in the square, but not its shops. There's a trattoria and a gelateria, their similar decoration connecting them, side by side. Yes, they're all one, her father said. In this square, her father lifted her high above his head, and she looked down and saw his laughing, upturned face, and she laughed too, because he joked so. Her mother stuttered out her schoolgirl French in the little hotels where they stayed on the journey out, and blushed with shame when no one understood. Oh, this is pleasant her mother murmured, a table away from where Harriet is now. A priest comes down the steps of the church, looks about him, does not see whom he thought he might. A skinny dog goes limping by. The bell of Santa Fabiola chimes twelve o'clock, and when it ceases, another bell, farther away, begins. Clouds have covered the sun, but the air is as hot as ever. There's still no breeze. It was in the foyer of the Rembrandt cinema that he said he didn't think their love affair was working. It was then that she exclaimed, But weren't we happy? They didn't quarrel, not even afterwards, when she asked him why he had told her in a cinema foyer. He didn't know, he said. It just seemed right in that moment, some fragment of a mood they shared. If it hadn't been for their holidays being quite soon, their relationship might have dragged on for a while. Much better that it shouldn't, he said. The 14th of February in London was quite as black and cold and wintersome as it was in Allington, and was, perhaps, somewhat more melancholy in its coldness. 
She has read that bit before and couldn't settle to it, and cannot now. She takes her dark glasses off. The clouds are not the pretty bundles she noticed before. White cotton wool, as decoration is by Raphael or Perugino. The clouds that have come up so quickly are gray as lead, a somber panoply pegged out against a blue that's almost lost. The first drops fall when Harriet tries the doors of Santa Fabiola and finds them locked. They will remain so, a notice tersely states, until half-past two. It had been finally arranged that the marriage should take place in London, she reads in the Trattoria. There were certainly many reasons which would have made a marriage from Courcy Castle more convenient. The de Courcy family were all assembled at their country family residence and could therefore have been present at the ceremony without cost or trouble. She isn't hungry. She has ordered risotto, hoping it will be small, and mineral water without gas. C'è del pane o della farina nel piatto? Non devo mangiare della farina, a woman is saying, and the gaunt-faced waiter carefully listens, not understanding at first, and then excitedly nodding. Non c'è farina, he replies, pointing at items on the menu. The woman is from the pensione. She's with a lanky young man who might be her son, and Harriet can't identify the language they speak to one another. Is fine? The same waiter asks Harriet as he passes, noticing that she has begun to eat her risotto. She nods and smiles and reads again. The rain outside is heavy now. The Annunciation in the Church of Santa Fabiola is by an unknown artist, perhaps of the school of Filippo Lippi. No one is certain. The angel kneels, gray wings protruding, his lily half hidden by a pillar. The floor is marble, white and green and ochre. The virgin looks alarmed, right hand arresting her visitor's advance. Beyond, background to the encounter, there are gracious arches, a balustrade, and then the sky and hills. There is a soundlessness about the picture, the silence of a mystery. No words are spoken in this captured moment. What's said between the two has been said already. Harriet's eye records the details, the green folds of the angel's dress, the red beneath it, the mark in the sky that is a dove, the virgin's book, the stately pillars and the empty vase, the virgin's slipper, the bare feet of the angel. The distant landscape is soft, as if no heat has ever touched it. It isn't alarm in the virgin's eyes, it's wonderment. In another moment, there will be serenity. A few tourists glide about the church, whispering now and again. A man in a black overall is mopping the floor of the central aisle and has roped it off at either end. An elderly woman prays before a statue of the Virgin, each bead of her rosary fingered, lips silently murmuring, incenses cloying on the air. Harriet walks slowly past flaring candles and the tomb of a local family, past the relics of the altar and the story of Santa Fabiola flaking in a side chapel. She has not been in this church before, neither during her present visit nor in the past. Her parents didn't bother much with churches. She might have come here on her own yesterday, or on any day of her stay, but she didn't bother either. Her parents liked the sun in the garden of the pensione, the walk down to the cafes and drives into the hills, or to other little towns, to the swimming pool at Ponte Nicolo. The woman who has been praying hobbles to light another candle, then prays again and hobbles off. Returning to the Annunciation, Harriet sits down in the pew that's nearest it. There is blue as well as gray in the wings of the angel, 
little flecks of blue you don't notice when you look at first. The virgin slipper is a shade of brown. The empty vase is bulb-shaped with a slender stem. The virgin's book had gold on it, but only traces remain. The rain has stopped when Harriet leaves the church. The air is fresher. Too slick and glib to use her love affairs to restore her faith in love, that thought is there mysteriously. She has cheated in her love affairs. That comes from nowhere, too. Harriet stands a moment longer, alone on the steps of the church, bewildered by this personal revelation, aware instinctively of its truth. The dust of the piazza paving has been washed into the crevices that separate the stones. At the cafe where she had her cappuccino, the waiter is wiping dry the plastic of the chairs. The sun is still reluctant in the watery sky. On her walk back to the Pensione Cesarina, it seems to Harriet that in this respite from the brash smother of heat, a different life has crept out of the foliage and stone. A coolness emanates from the road she walks on. Unseen among the wild geraniums, one bird sings. Tomorrow, when the sun is again in charge at its time of year, a few midday minutes will wipe away what lingers of this softness. New dust will settle, marble will be warm to touch. Weeks it may be, months perhaps, before rain coaxes out these fragrances that are tender now. The sun is always pitiless when it returns, harsh in its punishment. In the dried-out garden of the Pensione Cesarina, they made her wear a hat she didn't like, but they could take the sun themselves, both of them skulking behind dark glasses and high-factor cream. Skyros's sun is its attraction. What I need is sun, he said, and Harriet wonders if he went there after all, if he's there today, not left behind in London, if he even found someone to go with. She sees him in Skyros, windsurfing in Atsitsa Bay, which he has talked about. She sees him with a companion who is uncomplicated and happy in Atsitsa Bay, who tries out a therapy just to see what it's like. The deck chairs are sodden at the Pensione Cesarina, rose petals glisten. A glass left on a terrace table has gathered an inch of water. The umbrellas in the outer hall have all been used. Windows, closed for a while, are opened. On the vineyard slopes, the sprinklers are turned on again. Not wanting to be inside, Harriet walks in the garden and among the vines, her shoes drenched. From the town comes the chiming of bells, six o'clock at Santa Fabiola, six o'clock a minute later somewhere else. While she stands alone among the dripping vines, she cannot make a connection that she knows is there. There is a blankness in her thoughts, a density that feels like muddle also, until she realizes the Annunciation was painted after rain. Its distant landscape, glimpsed through arches, has the temporary look that she is seeing now. It was after rain that the angel came. Those first cool moments were a chosen time. In the dining room, the table where the man with the garish shirts sat has been joined to a family table to allow for a party of seven. There is a different woman where the smart French woman sat and no one at the table of the old man. The woman who was explaining in the trattoria that she must not eat food containing flour is given consomme instead of ravioli. New faces are dotted everywhere. Buonasera! The rust-haired waitress greets Harriet, and the waitress with glasses brings her salad. Grazie, Harriet murmurs. Prego, signora! She pours her wine, breaks off a crust of bread. 
It's noisy in the dining room now, dishes clattering, the babble of voices. It felt like noise in the foyer of the Rembrandt cinema when he told her. The uproar of shock, although in fact it was quite silent there. Bright, harsh colors flashed through her consciousness as if some rush of blood exploded in a kaleidoscope of distress. For a moment in the foyer of the cinema, she closed her eyes, as she had when they told her they weren't to be a family anymore. She might have sent them postcards, but she hasn't. She might have reported that breakfast at the Pensione is more than coffee and rolls, since the Germans and the Dutch and the Swiss have begun to come. Cheese and cold meats, fruit and cereals, fresh sponge cake, a buffet on the terrace. Each morning she has sat there reading the small house at Allington, wondering if they would like to know of the breakfast time improvement. She wondered today if it would interest them to learn that the abandoned petrol pumps are still there on the road to the town, or that she sat in the deserted park beneath the chestnut trees. She thought of sending him a postcard too, but in the end she didn't. His predecessor it was who encouraged her to bring long novels on holiday, the tenant of Wildfell Hall, the mill on the floss. It's beef tonight with spinach. And afterwards, Harriet has Dolce, remembering this sodden yellow raisin cake from the past. She won't taste that again. As mysteriously as she knows she has cheated without meaning to in her love affairs, she knows she won't come back, alone or with someone else. Coming back has been done. A private journey that chance suggested. Tomorrow she'll be gone. In the room with the bookcases and the Giotto reproductions, she watches while people drink their grappa or their stock, or ask the white-jacketed boy for more coffee, or pick up conversations with one another. The Belgian girls have got to know the young Englishman who goes down after Rex, and Nev who's in the business world. All four pass through the room on their way to the terrace, the girls with white cardigans draped on their shoulders because it isn't as warm as it was last night. That man drew us! A voice cries, and the couple who were sketched last night gaze down at their hardly recognizable selves in the Pensione's comment book. He backed away, as others have, when she asked too much of love, when she tried to change the circumstances that are the past by imposing a brighter present, and constancy in the future above all else. She has been the victim of herself. With vivid clarity she knows that now, and wonders why she does and why she didn't before. Nothing tells her when she ponders the solitude of her stay in the Pensione Cesarina, and she senses that nothing ever will. She sees again the brown and green striped tie of the old man who talked about being on your own, and the freckles that are blotches on his forehead. She sees herself walking in the morning heat past the graveyard and the rusted petrol pumps. She sees herself seeking the shade of the chestnut trees in the park and crossing the piazza to the trattoria, where the first raindrops fell. She hears the swish of the cleaner's mop in the church of Santa Fabiola. She hears the tourists whisper. The fingers of the praying woman flutter on her beads. The candles flare. The story of Santa Fabiola is lost in the shadows that were once the people of her life. The family tomb reeks odorlessly of death. Rain has sweetened the breathless air. The angel comes mysteriously also. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. 
If you'd like to support the show, you can join us at patreon.com slash literature, where we give Patreon members an extra episode each month for those who've chosen to support the show and support the cause of literature by throwing a little extra our way. That's patreon.com slash literature. We've got some good shows coming up, people, so please do subscribe and tell all your friends. They might be going crazy, aren't we all? So let's fend that off by giving our minds a break and putting some literature in your ears or some history of literature while you're sitting quietly by the window, looking out at the world, or while you're trying some new recipes or sitting at the kitchen table waiting for the groceries to arrive. Maybe you're exercising on your bike, or maybe you're just lying in bed waiting for the darkness to end. We're there for you. We'll have Italo Calvino coming up soon, and some James Baldwin, and Mike Palindrome will be here. We're diving into Shakespeare again, and Alice Monroe and masculinity as a topic. Male vulnerability, lots more besides. Faulkner, and a brand new feature. Never been done before by anyone, anywhere, I'm pretty sure. We'll see how that goes. Ah, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Oh,